Welcome to episode 118 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called melanieavalonscloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. 
I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed, but with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 118 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I'm good, and I just have to say, I'm going to fast forward to the future, to the day that this episode comes out, which is July 22nd, 
And you will be listening to this on the, if you're listening on July 22nd, on the last day of my 40s. Because <laughs> tomorrow I turn 50. I, that just seems like such a big one. Happy early birthday. Thank you. I've been already like mentally fine with the idea of being 50, but is it going to be, feel, am I going to feel different? I mean, 40 was nothing. 30 was nothing. Is 50 going to feel different when I get there? I don't know. You'll have to let us know next episode. I have to follow up and let you know. But anyway, I'm actually really excited about being 50. I'm excited for you. I feel like 50 is going to be your year. Not really. I don't want to say there's like a year, but I feel like, I don't know. I feel like, Jen, you've done so much already, but I feel like there's so much to come still. Me too. Like, I don't feel... I, mean, I guess people feel, you know, bad about getting older because they're like, oh my gosh, 50, that's so old. That's half a century. But I'm excited. I'm like, 50. Like, I do feel like I'm just getting started. So, anyway, there you have it. I'm actually really excited now for, although when we record next, you still won't be 50. So, I'm excited for once you are 50. Once I really am 50, I'll tell you how I feel. Super excited. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because we record a couple of weeks ahead of time. So, <laughs> but I am really excited about turning fifty tomorrow on July twenty third. It was such a good a good week to be born. Here's a little fun fact about me: I was born the week that man first walked on the moon. Nineteen sixty nine was a very good year. A lot of cool things happened in nineteen sixty nine. The day I was born, man was on the moon. Uh, unless, unless we never went to the moon. Well, yeah, that's there you go. That's there's that conspiracy theory. <laughs> Have you heard of the, the dark side of the moon conspiracy theory? I don't know if I know the dark side of the moon conspiracy theory. What is that one? I think that's the one that the moon is or the hollow moon, the hollow moon. I've, I've seen that. I don't know anything about it, but I've, I've heard that there is one. I don't know anything about it, though. Yeah, there's this conspiracy theory that the moon is it's not a um planetary object that it's like a you know a constructed satellite or something all right that one's nutty people have been talking about the moon ever since like recorded time that's i don't understand that theory that's a th that's a crazy thing about, and the dangerous thing about conspiracy theories is i feel like with most conspiracy theories that actually are big enough that they have you know a credible following credible <laughs> that they have a a following and a Wikipedia page, if you take the time to sit down and like read the theory and then read, you know, why people think it, you're like, oh, okay. You know, like anything that like that much energy has been put into, it's very easy, I think, to convince yourself of any conspiracy theory. Uh, well, yeah, they are. It is fun to read them. I have always been fascinated in topics like that. Like, you know, have you ever heard the conspiracy theory about the Titanic? No. Oh my gosh, you got to look that one up. <laughs> this one's plausible. There's a whole book about it and websites that talk about it. There's a conspiracy theory that the ship that sank was not actually the Titanic, but it was her sister ship that had been, there was like one, was it the Olympic or the Olympia? Whatever it was. I, I, it's been a long time since I looked it up, but 
the ship actually sailed before the Titanic and it actually was damaged sailing out of the harbor or something. It ran into something or whatever, and it was damaged and they were unable to get the insurance money for whatever reason I can't remember. And so they sank the Titanic on purpose, but that really wasn't the Titanic. It was the sister ship and they changed the name of it so they could recover the insurance money. So was there two ships or one ship? There were two. There were two ships, the Titanic and then the Olympic, I think, was the other one. And the Olympic was damaged and they couldn't recover any insurance money. So they repainted the name on it, Titanic, and sank it on purpose. That's a conspiracy theory. And there are all these photos and people like analyze them. And I mean, you would hate to think that that would be done on purpose and but that, you know, there's just so many conspiracy theories out there that people do put a lot of attention in. I am not telling you that that is, I think that's true, but it's interesting. You know, could people have faked it? You would really like to think that they wouldn't because so many people died. But, you know, someone that only was trying to make a buck, people do bad things. There was the, um, like last week, I read an article that they finally released the... <laughs> You know that that famous Bigfoot video? I mean, there are, there are a lot of Bigfoot videos, but like the one everybody's seen. I guess he like submitted the hair to the FBI at the time. The FBI never answered. But now they released their records of the DNA test from the hair. Do you know what it was? Deer. <laughs> That's funny. And yet not surprising at all. I was um, obsessed with like Bigfoot and things like that growing up. I will say. Me too. Did you, there was a show in the 70s called In Search Of. I'm sure you never saw an In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Oh, my goodness. Leonard Nimoy is like the love, love of my life. I did not know that. Oh, my God. I love Leonard Nimoy too. No, he was, the, he was my first crush ever. Spock was. Me too. Okay. So, me too. I, I love Leonard Nimoy so much. And you never watched In Search Of? He was the host of it. No, I can't believe it. You would have loved it. Okay, so In Search Of was this show hosted by Leonard Nimoy, and he had topics like In Search Of Bigfoot, In Search Of the Loch Ness Monster, In Search Of UFOs. And I used to love it. Have you seen his video of Bilbo Baggins? No. Oh, my gosh. Jen, there's his video. It's Leonard Nimoy. It's musical, and he sings about Bilbo Baggins from Lord of the Rings. I don't know if it's, I don't even know if it's supposed to be funny or serious. I married a scientist. I married a a PhD chemist. You know, I like a smart man. That must be the attraction with Leonard Nimoy, right? I mean, yeah, I I guess. (gasps) (laughs) That's just really funny that you, that you felt the same way. Yeah. I loved him. Obsessed, obsessed with Spock. I wanted to marry him. Well, you're going to have to look up um, in search of because, you know, I've just always been interested. And anything that's controversial, you know, remember that the earth going around the sun was once controversial. And, (laughs) you know, we learn new things. So I've always been interested in that that other perspective and questioning. And I am just going to throw this out there. There is one conspiracy theory that I honestly don't know why more people don't take seriously or think about more. Now I'm so curious about which one it is. I I mean, I was so obsessed with this. I wrote a paper. My high school thesis paper was on this topic. What? Crop circles. Oh, yeah. I've always been interested in those too. I mean, there are the the ones people make. Like, they're the simple ones. 
that are like a circle and people clearly made it you know with the boards and they push on the they push down the the corn but then there are these elaborate designs that appear overnight and the the corn like when they analyze it it looks like it's been hit by like intense heat or something like it's like gen- it's um you know changed its form and then people say you know people will say that they you know the night before that they saw things and then like the actual crop circles will mess with like emf and the electromagnetic field which is the same thing i don't know i just feel like they're kind of a big deal and we don't we just completely ignore them do they still happen now because i haven't heard anybody talk about crop circles in a long time I mean, I think they do because I know when I was doing my research, I mean, this was in high school, but I I, like bought these different books on them and they have these pictures of these just like elaborate crop circles. Yeah, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Yeah, there's a lot we don't know. And, you know, there's an explanation, but we don't know what it is. But just because we don't know what it is doesn't mean it's it's not something we haven't considered. You know, there's a lot of things. People used to think germs were ridiculous and anybody who was. You know, the the doctors who were like, maybe we should wash our hands. They're like, you're an idiot. That's stupid. (laughs) You think there's something we can't see on your hands, dummy? No. So, so many of the things that we know are true were poo-pooed early on. So that's all I'm saying. (laughs) That's That's the mindset I like to have. We don't know everything. And when we think we do, we we are wrong. I'm going to have to have an episode on my new podcast about conspiracy theories because. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've always loved them. Oh, I love them. That's probably the one thing I, besides like health related things that I could just like research and research and research. And I'm just fascinated by it. Interestingly, I'm actually not as interested or fascinated by the conspiracy theories that are more political. Those don't fascinate me as much. Like things like the JFK. I'm like, oh, okay, well, but it, but the things that, are, I don't know, it's the things where there's like this other aspect to it, like crop circles or. Well, I think the political ones are more likely to be true just because people do shifty things and it's not as interesting if it's just someone being shifty. <laughs> you know. I mean, the 9-11 stuff, that's all. And that's really crazy too. It is. And. Not to make everybody think we're a bunch of nuts, but it's it's it is interesting to think about that we don't always know the true story for everything. But we do know that Jen Stevens was born on July twenty third, nineteen sixty nine. Or do we? <laughs> Can we see her birth again? Uh, we we cannot. No, sorry, you'll just have to t- take my word for it. So what's up with you? <laughs> I think we just talked a lot about that, things that are up with us. But I had things I was going to talk about, but I, I can save it because I feel like we talked a lot. <laughs> now I just want to go research crop, cir- crop circles and um, aliens. We didn't even talk about UFOs, which would technically probably be the, um, I mean, that's probably the one thing that has the most firsthand eyewitness. Like, I've always heard this, like, it's like if UFOs went to trial, they would have the most firsthand eyewitness accounts you know, compared to like anything else. Well, my grandmother claims to have seen one. Oh, really? What does she say? Wait, tell me. She lived in the in a big old house in the country in South Carolina, and they had a pond on their property. And she said one night they had friends over, and they were all standing on the balcony on, on the second floor, like like porch kind of. And they looked out over that pond, and they saw something come hover over it, land, and then come back up. And none of them could identify what it was. I mean, this was probably in the 70s. 
Oh, it definitely was in the 70s. Yeah, because they bought the house when I was one. So they bought it in 1970. So this happened at some point in the 70s. I mean, what did she see? Who knows? <laughs> we don't know. Weather balloon. Was it a weather? She saw something. Was it a weather balloon? Was it a helicopter? I don't know. But she saw something, and they didn't know what it was. And I can't remember how she described it, but she, they, she was, like, convinced it was – I mean, it was clearly unidentified and flying, but she was convinced it was not something, you know, easily explainable. I I always thought the most valid or interesting testimonies were, I mean, it's hard to tell because it's those TV shows, especially now, now that I know so much about the industry, I'm like, whatever. But um, like the ones where they do like the pilot testimonies. Oh, yeah. I'm always fascinated by that. Or the astronauts. Yeah. So many things. We didn't even talk about Bermuda Triangle or ghosts or Atlantis. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Well, we, we if, if only we could have Leonard Nimoy on. He, yeah, he would, Leonard Nimoy and In Search Of, he could, he could talk about them. I watched all of, they all had all of those topics. They had Bermuda Triangle. They had it. You name it. They had it. I would have loved that. Hi, friends. Now, I know most of you are familiar with the power of protein to help us to recompose our bodies, get fitter and leaner by losing body fat and protecting and gaining muscle or lean body mass. Now, protein supplementation is one of the best ways to do it. It is scientifically validated to help us produce high quality weight loss. Now, when it comes to weight loss, traditionally, a lot of people will do high carb, low calorie diets, and those have been shown to generate upwards of 40% lean body mass loss. Now, protecting your lean body mass and your muscle is crucial when you are wanting to lose some fat because during weight loss, you don't want the weight lost to be coming from your muscle. The more muscle you're able to retain, the more you're metabolically active tissue, which is going to keep your metabolic rate much higher and help you maintain the fat loss after you have achieved it. Now, one of the best ways, as I said, to do this is through using protein shakes. I've been on the lookout for years to find a high quality protein supplement that does not have fillers, dyes, artificial sweeteners, and using cheap protein concentrate, which can cause all kinds of issues like bloating and indigestion. I finally created a protein supplement that meets my standards, and it's something that I personally use every single day, and that is Tone Protein. Tone Protein not only is extremely clean and high quality with only whey protein isolate, no concentrates, no fillers. It is also scientifically formulated to optimize muscle protein synthesis, which is going to help you build lean body mass and muscle in the most efficient way possible. I am so incredibly excited about Tone Protein. Not only is it extremely high quality and optimized to help you recompose your body. It is also absolutely delicious. We've been having so much fun with all the different flavors that we are creating, and I just can't wait for you all to try it. Now, I wanted to create a special launch discount for all of you listeners so that you could check it out, try it out, see how you like it, and test it out for yourself. In order to receive that launch discount, you can head over to toneprotein.com and sign up with your name and email address. 
and you'll receive an email to double opt in to the list and you'll be the first to know when Tone Protein is available to order and you will also receive that exclusive launch discount. It is going to be the biggest discount that we ever offer on Tone Protein. So I really want all of you to be able to receive it. So be sure to go to toneprotein.com, sign up with your name and email and you'll be double opted in to that list. And I am so excited for you all to try it out. Let me know what you think of it and let it help you to optimize your body recomposition goals, get that fat loss and maintain and protect your lean body mass while doing it. All right. Shall we jump into everything for today? This actually, I don't think we have any questions about fasting and conspiracies. No, we could, we could make one though about why has fasting been kept from us? Is it a medical conspiracy? There's the, the, the breatharians, the people who say that they um, don't eat ever. And they just breathe. I don't think that's true. But if you're a breatharian, can you please write into the podcast? I would like to interview you. Yeah, I don't think it's true. <laughs> All right. So the first question comes from Michael. The subject is larger window. And Michael says, I was curious if you have heard of any benefits with a larger window of time to eat. Would a more consistent 14-hour daily fast with a 10-hour eating window work if you are mindfully eating to satiety cues rather than pleasure and overwhelming your system? Just curious because my schedule is all over the place. Thanks so much. Just wondering if you had any thoughts, Mike. All right, Jen. That's a great question. And it just depends on what you're looking for as far as benefits go. I mean, are there benefits with a consistent 14-hour daily fast? Sure. I've seen suggestions that the benefits of the fasted state may begin as early as hour 12, but then, you know, they increase and change as you go throughout the fasted state. So, you know, obviously 14 hours is going to have probably more benefits than 12. But if you're trying to tap into fat stores and you're trying to burn fat, I'm not sure if 14 hours is going to give you that. You may need to, you know, work for 16 in that case. But would 14 be better than not fasting at all? Absolutely. And, you know, I know there are people that eat three meals a day and they're perfectly healthy and they just have normal breakfast, normal lunch, normal dinner. They don't snack all the time. They have... You know, they're eating mindfully all the time and they're perfectly healthy. But are you going to receive the benefits of fasting? I mean, you know, there comes a point when they, that you may need to go just a little longer to get them. So I don't know that I answered that question. Yes, a 14 hour fast would give you probably some benefits depending on what you're looking for. If you really are trying to get into fat burning and increased autophagy, I would say, more like 16 to 18 would be what you want. But again, it also sounds like maybe you're just, having different lengths of fasts because your schedule is different day to day, in which case I'd say go for it because maybe one day you only have 14, but the next day you have 20 and the 20 will give you those benefits that you might not have achieved by the time you got to hour 14 the day before. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, I think you answered it well. And I actually wanted to draw attention to something else in his question. He says, would a more consistent 14 hour daily fast with a 10 hour eating window work if you're mindfully eating to satiety cues rather than pleasure and overwhelming your system. I just want to draw attention to that because it sounds like there's this idea here that if you are 
eating in a shortened... Okay, tell me if you're reading this the same way I am, Jen. When I'm reading this, I'm seeing it as like this dichotomy between either having a smaller eating window and then overeating in that eating window compared to a longer window and eating more mindfully when I don't think that dichotomy has to necessarily exist. Like you can still eat mindfully and not overwhelm your system in a smaller window. I read it differently. I read it as having, you know, you're eating mindfully and not just because of the pleasure of eating. I didn't think that had anything to do with the the, the window length, but just eating mindfully and not eating just for pleasure. But see, I can't separate eating for pleasure because eating is pleasure. And so that that is the part that I had trouble with because all eating is pleasure to me. Yeah. So I guess, I, th- I guess regardless, it's important to emphasize that I think we don't ever advocate. I mean, you know, we don't want anybody to ever be overwhelming their system in any case. Maybe he means recreational eating, just eating, you know, because of something to do. You know what I mean? I think actually the way you read it is what he's saying. He's saying like, I feel like he's just wondering if a longer eating window can work as long as he's being mindful in that window. If he's mindfully eating within it. Yeah. It just depends on what he means by work and what benefits he's looking for. Yeah. It depends on basically what your goals are and what works for you. And I like what you said, Jen, and we've said this before. I mean, clearly there are people who live long, happy lives, never having done any quote, intentional fasting. And it's just because, you know, of their lifestyle and genetics and mentality and approach, that's what works. So it's all really about finding what works for you. And I think, um, I'm just so fascinated by all the studies and on centenarians. I think what we see the most with that is that oftentimes it's genetics and mindset. Epigenetics maybe more so than even one certain diet. Because we have so many examples of centenarians who even, you know, say they, not, I'm not advocating this, but don't follow good, quote, healthy diets or smoke or drink. And, you know, is that because they're just, their genetics are just prime for longevity? Or is it because they're not stressing about what they're doing? And so it's changing how food is working in their body? I don't know. But um, I think, why am I on this tangent? (laughs) Because not everybody, some people are healthy and never fasted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why. Yeah. So it's really is about finding, I think, what works for you. So, Mike? Let us know. All right. Ready for the next question? This is from Amanda. And the subject is, am I burning fat or muscle? Amanda says, hi, guys. Love your podcast and love intermittent fasting. I've been doing IF for about a month and have lost 18 pounds and I feel great. I started with 16.8 and now I just change it up every day. I go at least 16 hours before eating, but I'll wait as long as I can. So I often do one meal a day. Just depends how I'm feeling. I was having creamer in my coffee for the first three weeks, but I have taken Jen's advice over the last week and started clean fasting. Yay, Amanda. My question is this. Are we sure I'm burning fat? I know you can't be certain of this, but what do you think? I feel almost extra jiggly recently, and it's making me wonder if I'm losing weight some other way other than burning fat, which I guess would be burning muscle. Can you even burn muscle? 
I don't have any of the signs of ketosis other than feeling really good throughout the day, sometimes getting that boundless energy feeling. I've heard Jen talk about how not everyone gets the symptoms, so I'm not sure if I'm in ketosis or not. I'm just assuming if you go 20, which I sometimes do, you're probably getting into ketosis. I just don't want to lose pounds. I want to lose fat. What do you think? All right. So this is a great question from Amanda. So are we sure you're burning fat? So short of getting really extensive blood work tests done, and I I don't even know how they test for this. I think they, I don't even know. It's hard to tell at any given point where your energy literally came from, you know, at that moment. So the energy that you experience at any moment, did it come from a carb that you ate? Did it come from glycogen? Did it come from a fat you ate? Did it come from beta oxidation? Did it come from lipolysis? Did it come from a ketone? Did it come from muscle, protein? We don't trace it back. We just, no, we don't know. (laughs) And we can't say for certain where it's coming from. That's why I think it's important to not even fixate on that in the short-term moment and instead look at the overall dietary approach that you can follow consistently that leads to the long-term changes. And what we see a lot is that you know, doing an intermittent fasting type lifestyle where you are eating ample nutrients, ample calories in your eating window, tightening up your eating window if you feel, if you do feel like you need a longer fast, but making it work for you. Having these consistent changes, regardless of where your energy is coming from at any certain moment, we see in the studies and we see in all the testimonials and like the Facebook groups that it preserves muscle, it increases growth hormone during the fast, so you're not having to worry about losing muscle. To answer your question, yes, you can burn muscle. That Yes, that can happen. But we do see in the literature and from experience that doing an intermittent fasting, especially like a one meal day approach, tends to preserve muscle. So I don't think it's something you can need to worry about as much, especially if you're especially if you're worried about losing muscle, I would encourage you to do some sort of resistance type training, you know, or lifting heavy things, basically keeping your muscles active so that your body, quote, knows it needs to preserve these muscles. And so then you'll have the added benefit of with the upregulated growth hormone from the fast, preserving and building muscle even with fasting. So as far as like signs of ketosis, that's something else we talk about a lot. Like, I don't know. I I, I feel like we're not huge fans of like hardcore measuring ketone levels or anything. I mean, it it can be really telling when you're first starting a new dietary approach to see if your body is generating ketones. But beyond that, I think it's more beneficial to go by how you're feeling. I don't know what your, your list of symptoms is for ketosis. Maybe she's expecting like a certain breath smell or measuring urinary ketones or blood ketones. But I I think that boundless energy feeling is often a good sign, especially if you are in the fasted state. Jen, what what are your thoughts on everything? Well, I think that Amanda is really only one week into fasting because the first three weeks she was having creamer. And I really do think that makes more of a difference than you think because, you know, creamer, you know, is sweet. It has calories. It makes your body release insulin. It keeps you from tapping into your fat stores because insulin is up. And um, so that just becomes a low-calorie diet. So, I mean, I don't know how much creamer you're having. If you were like me, I was always nursing a, a coffee with something in it back in the day. And so, I don't, if you were doing that, you're just really a week into the fasted state. So, keep that in mind. So, you're probably not fully adapted to burning fat yet at this point. So, 
yeah, you, you've lost, you know, I wouldn't think you've lost 18 pounds of pure fat. And it is true that when your body can't get to your stored fat, it's going to burn what it can find. And that's when you may also lose muscle mass. But fasting, clean fasting is very protective of retaining your muscle mass. And there's so many things that go on behind the scenes that do protect your muscle mass. I have never seen an analogy that I liked better than Dr. Jason Fung's The Log and the Sofa. That's what just came into my head. I've never seen an analogy I liked better than this one. So let's imagine that you need to start a fire in your fireplace. Are you going to chop up your sofa and throw it on the fireplace? Or are you going to go to the stack of logs that you have already sitting there and use those? Obviously, you're not going to chop up your sofa. You're going to go use the logs. So the logs represent stored fat that you've got on your body, and your sofa represents the muscle tissue. You're not going to chop that up. It's valuable. Your body is the same way. Now, imagine the logs are locked up, and you can't get to them, and you're literally going to die if you can't start that fire. This is me. He, this is not part of his analogy. This is my own. I'm going off off on my own tangent here, but... You might would chop up your sofa if it was either burn the sofa or die. But the key is being able to get to the stored logs. They're not locked away. So that's the difference between fasting versus a low-calorie diet. In the low-calorie diet, your logs may be locked away and you can't get to them. So you might have to burn the sofa. But if you're fasting and you're fasting clean, you're able to get to the logs that you have stored away. And you're going to use those, not your sofa. And yeah, the feeling of having the good mental clarity and the energy, that's the best sign of ketosis, just knowing that you can keep fasting and and you feel good. That's a good sign. You don't need to measure it. Anything to add there, Melanie? Just that we really need to get Dr. Fung on our podcast. Oh, I would love that. I'm going to look into that more. Listeners, if anybody has, I don't know, has any connection to him and would like to introduce us. Yeah, I'd love to have him on the podcast. He's He's the reason that that I was finally successful because it was the obesity code. You know, Dr. Hearing, I owe a lot to Dr. Hearing, but and and he got me started, you know, his Fast 5 program and he's a great guy. I love him so much too, but it was the obesity code that really helped me understand why I needed to fast clean. So that really changed everything for me. Although he has complicated thoughts on fasting clean, doesn't he? Well, it, it's not that they're complicated thoughts. I think he under he he agrees with with the, what fasting is and what it isn't. But he also works with patients, and so I know that doctors have an idea of to get someone to do a to be compliant is not always easy. So he's like, well, this shouldn't affect you too much. So go ahead and you know a little bit's better than nothing. Whereas I I think that a little bit actually makes it harder for you and nothing is actually going to make it easier. And so if we just tell people from the beginning, I promise you the clean fast is going to be easier. You think that little bit is helping you, but it isn't really. Then people will, will see that for themselves. That's what I think. But I understand why a doctor might be like, well, I'd rather get you to do this that's not as bad versus doing nothing. Yeah, I agree. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, 
Literally every single day of my life, I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. That's what I do. I've been using Juve red and near infrared light therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy. That includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash ifpodcast and use the coupon code ifpodcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's j-o-o-v-v.com forward slash ifpodcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. So the next question comes from Nikki. The subject is fasting patterns of our ancestors. Nikki says, Jen and Melanie, this question may be more philosophical in nature, but I'm curious. Everyone in the IF community pretty much agrees that intermittent fasting is how our ancestors ate, simply because food wasn't readily available like it is now. The process of hunting, gathering, and preparing food took a long time. This point was one of the things that attracted me to IF in the first place, because I believe that getting closer to how our ancestors lived can only make us healthier. My question is, do you have any idea on how long, specifically, people in this time period would have spent hunting and therefore fasting? Hours at a time, eating every night or days at a time, feasting every couple of days? Or would it have varied greatly by region and the type of available prey? I guess I should have paid more attention in my anthropology classes in college. I have to admit that I'm currently toggling between one meal a day and ADF, which is alternate day fasting, 
so I'm fully in research mode right now. I'm not sure if this will or should actually change how I or anyone chooses to structure their windows, but I do think it's interesting. Thanks so much for your well-researched and thoughtful responses to all of our questions. Best, Nikki. All right, Jen, what are your thoughts? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think we know. I, I don't think we can say. And I, I think you're exactly right when you say that that it is going to vary greatly by region and type of available prey and also season. You know, certain seasons, food was more plentiful. And then in other seasons, there was less food. And it also depended on, you know, the climate. If, if it was somebody living in a tropical climate and they were, you know, feasting on pineapple and mango that was growing all the time versus somebody that lived in the tundra, I really don't think there's any one this is the way it was. It just depends on on where they lived and and what was there and what the season was. But they did have to work for it. We do know that. You know, we know that they they had to work a little more for the food than than we do. You know, I could just drive to the store and or drive through a restaurant. They're they're handing it to me out the window, or I could do like I could have them deliver it to my house. You know, I don't even have to leave the house to get it now. So. That's that's going to be a difference. You know, they had to work harder for it. It wasn't available twenty four seven. So I don't think I don't think that that we can answer it in any one. There's there, I don't think there's one answer because cultures all over the world ate differently. What do you think, Melanie? Yes. So I did hours of research on this question. I'm so not surprised. This is actually something I've been really fascinated by and wondering. Well, I knew that it would attract you because of the whole paleo idea and the whole, you know, eating like our ancestors. So it's really interesting. So there are so many studies on fasting and they will often, they'll often plug this idea. They'll say, you know, that historically we, as hunter gatherers, we were practicing intermittent fasting and it's kind of like just this idea and it's like in a sentence and then it like moves on, you know, but they never actually go into detail about that. I'm like, how do they know? <laughs> yeah, like it's kind of just like accepted. And then it's ironic because we read things about, oh, well, actually, as gatherers, we would be munching all day. Having fruit, having nuts. And then I was reading that some some patterns, it was like the men would be more hunting and doing more of like an intermittent fasting pattern, whereas the women would be more gathering. Like the, the hunters were the men, the gatherers were the women. So they're the ones that are, you know, gathering and eating constantly. Okay, the, first of all, the main takeaway I took was it was very, very different. I went through and I was reading like all the different, you know, the, the different eras between like the Paleolithic and the different cultures and what we ate and when we ate was all very different. It varied based on climate, based on society, based on like the size of groups. So like most hunter-gatherer societies, they were typically like smaller groups, but then as we became more elaborate and like more society-based, things changed. It's interesting because Nikki was saying, you know, the process of hunting, gathering, and preparing food took a long time. Actually, um, one study was talking about, or one review was talking about how the hunting, gathering lifestyle was actually a more immediate lifestyle. So there wasn't the preparing aspect of food. It was more like you hunted and you ate, you know, the kill. You didn't like, there wasn't really this preparing period. And that the, the preparing period is more what, ushered in, you know, a more modern type societal eating patterns. One study that was talking about how it, it was a study about intermittent fasting. And it was saying how it was talking about 
how naturally we are, you know, we have this fasting feasting pattern and it was comparing us to carnivores and saying that carnivores, you know, might eat once every few days. But then again, that's animals. That's not humans. So basically it's really, really complicated. Apparently in general climates that were, Jim was speaking about temperature and climate. So in general populations that were in more Arctic and colder climates are likely more genetically adapted to fasting, whereas climates that are more tropical are likely more adapted to more of the constant eating approach of like the lighter food, you know, like eating like fruits and things like that compared to the colder climates where it's more of like the hunting and the more of the fasting feasting pattern. And then I found one fascinating review actually titled hunter gatherers have less famine than agriculturalists. And it was looking at not the day to day intermittent fasting type pattern, but it was challenging the argument that hunter gatherers experienced more extended famine than agricultural societies. And they actually found after reviewing everything that it was actually agriculturalists and agricultural society that actually experienced longer quote famines than hunter-gatherer societies. Basically, the takeaway is it's really complicated. I've changed it varied considerably from population to population, from society to society. But I do think, like you were saying, Nikki, that the intermittent fasting approach does seem to be obviously more in line with our evolutionary genetics and our tendency to go through these periods where we're not constantly eating and not being like Jim was saying, you know, having meals shipped to our door and having the food already ready. As far as like the specific amount of hours, there's not one answer, but since you are in full research mode right now, if you find more information, I would love to hear it. And I am equally fascinated by this as well. That's the other complicated thing that often that I see conflicting things about is the timing of eating with circadian rhythms, because some of the things I read say that in the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, we'd be hunting all day, not eating, and they'd be eating a lot, you know, at night. And then I, on the flip side, I'll read, oh, no, actually, come night, that actually we would go to sleep because there was no reason to like stay up without the light. And so we would be actually eating during the day. And I think, I mean, I'm guessing it's just because it's so different, you know, from population to population. And I think all things are true, but I, or day to day or dated. Yeah. But I think the one thing that was consistent, maybe if we can say one consistent thing is that they were likely not eating 24 seven, like we are today. So yeah, I, I also was reading, about like how the three meal a day pattern came about. Basically it just worked the most culturally. Like it doesn't really have anything to do with our innate biology. It could have easily have been, I think a different paradigm, you know, like it could have for whatever reason have been a two meal a day or it could have been like a four meal a day. You know, that's such, I never thought about that. But Jen, you know, it totally could have been for some reason that when this whole meal per day thing happened that for some reason it was a four meal thing. You know, and maybe it would just be the thing that we did breakfast, second meal, lunch, dinner, you know, like, why was it three meals? I don't know. But there's like three specific meals. Could have been five meals. Could have been like two and a half meals or like in Lord of the Rings, like Lord of the Rings, they have breakfast and they have second breakfast. Yep. You know? Yeah. So many questions. So few answers. 
All right. So shall we talk about one of our supporters of the podcast today? Let's do it. Yes. All right. So we have two questions that go together. And one is from Kim. And the subject is caffeine can cause weight gain. Kim says, did you see this article on Mind Body Green about caffeine causing weight gain? And then she's got a link. What do you think? And then Dave says, subject caffeine, love the show. I'm 11 episodes in so far. I've been doing one meal a day for over a year now. I lost around 93 pounds. Woo, good job, Dave, and have kept it off. No more high blood pressure, no more heartburn, and I haven't been sick since I've started. I'm very strict, but I drink a lot of plain black coffee, and I read that too much caffeine can spike your insulin and possibly kick you out of ketosis and break your fast. Thanks. All right, so... Caffeine and ketosis and weight loss and weight gain. I think these are good questions because we talk about coffee a lot, but I don't think we've talked about caffeine specifically and the mechanisms here. So I think there are a few things going on here. There is this argument that caffeine actually, that it can, you know, raise your blood sugar, spike your insulin, kick you out of ketosis and break your fast. So there was a really, really good episode that I listened to yesterday, actually. And it was with Peter Atia. It was on the Peter Atia Drive podcast. Unfortunately, you have to be a, a member to get access to, because some of his episodes you have to pay a subscription to get access to. But I wanted to listen to the episode so bad. I was like, I will become a member. Um, and I guess it supports it. So that's a good thing. But it was a listener question episode. And somebody did ask, does coffee... It wasn't caffeine, but they're asking, does coffee break a fast because of this reason, because of spiking insulin? And what he was saying, and I think this is something really important to consider, is what do you mean by fasting? Because if fasting is completely just blood glucose levels or spiking insulin or something like that, then there are a whole lot of ways you can, quote, break your fast and not not even consuming anything. Like his example was you could be, you know, 24 hours fasted and then you could go do some high intensity exercise that actually raises your blood glucose. So are you no longer fasting? I mean, I would still say that you're fasting. <laughs> so from that perspective with glucose and insulin, we have to consider the context of what are we seeing as fasting. And then he was also making the example of, he was saying, if you're seeing fasting as complete gut rest, then ingesting coffee or something might actually for you be, I mean, you know, stimulating something in your gut. So for you, you might see that as not fasting, even though it'd be a fasted state metabolically. So it's a really complicated question. And again, it taps into things that are, and this is something else he was talking about. It's hard to get a picture of the overall state of your body by like one particular moment, like the amount of insulin at this one moment, the amount of blood glucose at this one moment. That's why I think it's more important to look at the hours and the time rather than what it's actually doing at that moment. Because we, we do see over time that most likely doing intermittent fasting is helping your insulin. So that's the one thing is that, yes, it is possible that caffeine could, depending on how you respond to it, depending on what it's doing in your body, it could, in theory, you know, tap into your liver glycogen, raise your blood glucose, maybe raise your insulin. 
if you've been fasting for a substantial amount of time, I would still consider you fasting. Now, as far as whether or not, so that's more about Dave's question. Does it like kick you out of ketosis or break your fast? You know, maybe you do switch over to burning blood glucose less than ketones at that moment, but I would still say that you're fasting regardless. As for Kim's question about caffeine causing weight gain, I do think that's a very individual thing. I think some people having the caffeine in their coffee, especially that, you know, it works for them. It supports fat burning would never be a problem. Whereas for other people due to whatever reasons, maybe it does cause weight gain by having a, um, either a, you know, they're not reacting so well to this insulin or this blood glucose effect, or by having like a cortisol type regulation issue where, you know, if it's increasing cortisol too much, you're not processing the caffeine adequately. And then it's creating like a rebound effect where you are storing more fat in the long run. That's why, again, very individual. I always feel like that's a cop-out answer, but I mean, we can do all these studies and all this research and we can look at the mechanisms at play and it's very fascinating. And I so honestly want to understand all of it, but in the end, it's really a matter of what's actually working on a implementable experimental level for you. So what are your thoughts, Jen? Yeah, I think, you know, we do see that coffee is very solidly linked to fat burning and weight loss in so many studies. I mean, this is not just something that we're not real sure about. It is, you know, coffee is linked to increased fat burning. And some of the stuff that goes on you know, like like raising blood glucose after coffee. What what caused that? Or oh my gosh, you know, insulin. It's you have to understand what coffee is doing that causes that to happen in your body. So let's think about that. We know that coffee helps your liver clear away some of the stored glycogen. So you drink the coffee, your liver dumps out some of that stored glycogen. Well, what's that going to do? Where'd that stored glycogen go? Well, it goes into your blood. And you're going to have maybe if you tested your blood, you'll see higher blood glucose after drinking that coffee. And it might make you freak out and think, oh, my gosh, coffee just raised my blood sugar. Well, where did that blood sugar come from? It didn't come from the coffee because the coffee had, you know, zero sugar with it. You're just drinking coffee. It came out of your own body. It came out of your liver. It actually helped your body by clearing out that liver glycogen, which is an important step along the way to really, really tapping into your body fat for fuel because you're, you know, needing to go into ketosis because you no longer have this stored liver glycogen that you can pull from for fuel. So it just helps you dump that more quickly. And so, you know, don't think that that means it just, you know, got you out of the fasted state. It just helped you possibly get into the fasted state more quickly. And yeah, you know, your body might release a little insulin to deal with that, but it's it's clearing it more quickly, which is a good thing. So you have to think, is this keeping me from burning fat and getting more deeply into the fasted state, or is it accelerating the process? In which case here, it's accelerating the process. Like Melanie mentioned, you might have increased blood glucose after exercising. Well, where did that come from? It came out of your own cells. You know, maybe it came from your muscles, whatever. Your body cleared out that glycogen, you know, your liver glycogen, and that's where it came from. So it's actually helping you get to that deeper fasted state, not hurting you. So it's important to understand what these physiological reactions actually mean in in the long term and whether it's helping you get to where you want to be or keeping you from getting where you want to be. And in both of those situations, it's helping you. Now, again, like Melanie said, she's exactly right that if your body, you know, too much caffeine is a stress for your body, then, 
yeah, I don't drink as much caffeine, but you know that's genetic as well, or it can be. My genetic reports show that I am more likely to drink more caffeine than usual because I'm a fast caffeine metabolizer. You may be somebody who's not, and then too much caffeine might be detrimental for you. So it's so individual. We can't give you like a, here's how much caffeine you should have, and you'll be fine. This is too much, because it's going to be different from person to person. So just you know, keep in mind all those things. It's not going to be the same for everybody, but overall, both caffeine and coffee are linked to some very positive health outcomes. That doesn't mean that every person's going to benefit from the same amount. And obviously, we're not doctors, <laughs> but I do think there is a difference between having high blood sugar because you are higher blood sugar because you took in a ton of exogenous sugar. So you ate a lot of sugar and your body is not able to clear it from the bloodstream versus your body for the metabolic reasons at that moment, maybe, you know, while you're fasting generated its own sugar from, you know, like glycogen or something like that. I mean, I know in the end, looking at both pictures, they might be the same blood sugar level, but the reason that's happening is different in both cases. And I think there are, I think there are different implications beyond that. I do wonder what the implications are like the, you know, like the glycation implications or something like that, with that being the mechanism behind the the level of blood sugar. Because I, I do know there are people that do super low carb diets and for some reason, well, not for some reason, well, yes, for some reason, (laughs) they do low carb diets and they have higher blood sugar levels. I mean, that's a whole nother that's a whole nother tangent, but basically there, there are different reasons that that can happen. Yeah. Dr. Jason Fung, again, I'm talking about him again, has a great blog post that I share frequently in the Facebook groups when people will wake up in the morning and they'll find their fasting, or, you know, they've been fasting and they're actually, their blood sugar actually goes up during fasting. Like, not just in the morning, but the longer they go during the fast, maybe they're at 16, 18 hours and their blood sugar is even higher than it was earlier. They're like, how can this be? And he has a great um, blog post about it. It's um, called the dawn phenomenon. And we most most see it at dawn in the morning because that's when most people wake up and their blood sugars are high because most people in the world now eat breakfast. But with people who are doing intermittent fasting and not having breakfast at the traditional time, you know, we continue in the fasted state longer through the day. And it is, it's your body dumping that that glycogen or clearing out the the stored blood glucose that you already have. And so that could be alarming because it looks like, oh my gosh, my blood sugar's going up when really it's a sign your body's getting out some of that that needed to come out. Again, though, if you have, you know, type 2 diabetes, if you're trying to manage your blood glucose, always follow recommendations, you know, from your endocrinologist, from your doctor. You don't want to have any kind of dangerous blood sugar levels, clearly. But understanding why your blood glucose may be higher after fasting is important. It's clearly coming from within your body. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are a Himalaya partnered show. So if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you will get access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. Just make sure you follow us in that app. Also in that app, I have a playlist called intermittent fasting podcast stuff we like that's where i put links to all the episodes from other podcasts that we talk about so i'll put a link to that that peter atia episode 
that I talked about, even though, like I said, you do have to be a subscriber to get the full episode, at least put a link to it. Also, we can follow us on Instagram. We are IF Podcast, and you can follow us on Twitter. We are the IF Pod. All right. Any final thoughts from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful, and I will talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you then. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.